If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me now to uh, the Gospel of Luke. And for our final time in our series of Luke, unless uh, the Lord wills otherwise, we're going to come back to Luke one more time, one more time. It was back on October 21st, 2018, that we began our study through this gospel. Uh, Over these two and a half years together, we have looked at Luke's authoritative and accurate account of the life and ministry and death of Jesus Christ. Luke wrote his gospel to give assurance to his people, to give assurance to those who believe in him about their faith, that what they learned about Jesus is true, especially his death and resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we will cover again in our passage today, is the capstone to the Christian faith. Without it, there is no Christian faith. Without it, Christianity is another religion following the teachings of their deceased founder. A philosophy without power, morality that does not matter, spirituality without substance. If there is no resurrection of Christ, then we all will die without any hope of what is on the other side of death. And if that is the case, we should just go living however we like, however we please, because we are going to die. Make no mistake. But that's all we know without the resurrection of Christ. However, as we've learned from the Bible, the heart of the gospel is this truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. As we've studied both of these truths, we've come to see that they are neither myth nor metaphor. They are real historical events that undergird our faith in Jesus Christ. And in today's passage, Luke culminates his gospel in this second uh, resurrection appearance of Jesus. And Jesus appears to his disciples and invites them then, in this passage, to respond to his resurrection. He invites them to respond to the living Jesus. And so we're going to look through this, uh, this section, this passage, there's uh, three kind of uh, different individual sections, and each one's going to teach us a, a different response to the resurrected Christ. So that's for our outline today. We're going to look at three responses of every disciple of Christ to the resurrection of Christ. And these should be, uh, these are the responses of the disciples then, and they, are, are the, they ought to be the responses of disciples of Christ today. And so uh, I hope that it will be encouraged to you, and uh, especially if you do believe in the resurrection of Christ, then uh, these would be uh, something that's manifest in your life. All right, let's take a look at uh, the first response of every disciple of Christ to the resurrection, and that is found in verses 36 to 43, we find the recognition of Christ's resurrection. The recognition, there's a response of recognition that you've got to recognize that it's, that it's true. You, in other words, you might even say this is the belief in Christ's resurrection. Verse 36 to 43, we look at Luke chapter 24. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see 
For his spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish. Here we find in this passage that uh, that Jesus appears to disciples. And in this exchange with them, he, he, he does several things to show that he truly is resurrected. And they, they're invited in his, in, his, in his actions to recognize that he is truly the risen Christ. Uh, verse 36 tells us that while they were telling these things, that's kind of just so uh, there uh, is indication that this is a, simply a continuation of the previous passage, uh, what we just found in verse 35 and previous after Jesus, and in those previous passages, it was uh, a passage about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus had appeared to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to them, and though they didn't recognize him, they were prevented from recognizing him, he spoke to them, and he asked them what's going on, just caused them to review what happened in the life of Christ, and then he reviewed the scriptures with them, from the Old Testament scriptures, from beginning to end, and showed them everywhere where it all pointed to him and the necessity of Christ to suffer. And to rise from the dead. And eventually, it was at the breaking of a bread that they began to recognize him. That they, their eyes were open. And then he vanished. But with joy, they all together, those two disciples, they walked all immediately back that very same day, all the way back to Jerusalem, and to tell the other disciples. And that's where we find, pick it up in verse 36. While they were telling the, the disciples these things about how they recognized Jesus, about how he appeared to them, etc., it's there that, in that, at that point, that Jesus himself now appears to all these disciples in their midst, and he greets them. Peace be with you. He... Well, for all the disciples who were there, uh, they were all, needless to say, shocked. Uh, just as if we would all be shocked if someone all of a sudden just appeared out of nowhere. Uh, the... You know, and, and it's even worse, you know, when someone appears out of nowhere, but it's worse when it's someone you know that's died, right? It's like, whoa, it's spooky, you know? It's just, it's like, uh, it's like hearing when you're a young kid and you hear, uh, like, your, uh, the, the stories of your, for your old parents or grandparents about how in the old villages they would see, you know, ghosts and dead people, and like, oh, that's spooky. They would tell you those things, like, you know, of course, you don't, you know, you kind of doubt it, but, like, uh, that's what, you feel that. There's, and that's what they're feeling here. They're, they're frightened. They're startled. They thought they were seeing a ghost, literally. A spirit, which is, you know, we could simply say a ghost. Even at this point, even at this point in, the story, in this narrative, the disciples, having heard the, the witness of the women, they've heard the witness of Peter, who saw him firsthand, eyewitness. They've heard the witness of the two disciples from Emmaus. The group of disciples, still as a whole, were not yet believing that Christ had risen. Instead of trust and faith, there was only trouble and doubts in their hearts. And Jesus just points that out to me. He, he still knows every heart, every intention of a man's heart, and what every thought in their minds. And Jesus' response then provides the disciples with proof that Jesus is truly alive, and he's not a ghost as they think he is. First, he provides proof of a, of a physical body in verses 39 to 40. He, he invites them basically... You think I'm a ghost? Well, well, touch me. Touch me. You know, touch my body. And he, 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 
he just invites them to, to touch his body. You know, a spirit, because it's, a spirit is, is something that is a, is a soul without a, a physical body, detached from a physical body. It wouldn't have flesh and bones. So by touching him, they would know then that he has actually a physical body. That even though he's risen, he's alive, it's not just his spirit that's alive, but it's his body as well. It's body and soul. He is not just spirit, but the risen Jesus is both spirit and body. The call then to, uh, that Jesus makes to look at his hands and look at his feet, he, he draws their attention to where most likely the nails had pierced his hands. So in some way they could see that there would be some kind of wounds or marks that indicated where his, his, uh, the, the nails had gone, pierced his hands and his feet. And so they, this was truly not just it wasn't like a, a twin this was truly jesus who was crucified whom they had seen die and who was now standing before them bodily resurrected it's so important there there was a, a heresies in the past that, that just say that jesus didn't really bodily raise it was like it was a it was he a, he was a, it was a spirit it was his apparition uh the 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 docetists uh, they were called at that time but jesus literally did raise bodily. He had a body when he was rose. However, even after allowing his disciples to touch him, they, they started touching, you know, they probably <laughs> grabbing him all over. They all still could not believe it, according to verse 21. They were not believing it. Though they felt joy at seeing him, amazement at seeing him, they really, in their hearts, they were still not believing it. They still could not grasp that he was fully and truly risen from the dead. So Jesus provides a second proof of his resurrection in verses 41 to 43. And there he asked them, of all things, for something to eat. Something to eat. Uh, of all the things to, to show that you are alive, uh, he says, do you have something to eat? And so they offer some, they had some broiled fish there. And so, mm, that sounds good. They offer some broiled fish to him. And then he took it and he, and he ate it right before them. Just like any normal living person. You know, it's a... Uh, uh, you know, you, they could. Uh, we we eat, we we live, we we breathe, we drink. You know, these are things that we do every day. Uh, there's some things that well, every we we do every day as human beings, as those who are alive. And eating is one of those main things that uh, we do because uh, we need to eat to live. So as Jesus, as Jesus, they're watching. You know, they're probably watching the whole time. You know, it's probably very awkward. They watch him chew and then swallow and then eat and eat the fish, <laughs> uh, but. In doing so, he was showing them, giving them a grim proof that he truly was alive. Whether the disciples ate with Jesus at the moment isn't, is, is not mentioned, but they probably, you know, since they had some leftover, some fish, they, maybe they joined in the meal together. In Acts chapter 10, verse 41, Peter, in his message to Cornelius uh, and, the, and his household, proclaimed basically how, Acts 10, 40, 41, God raised him up, that is Jesus up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And Peter was just one, he, even he is, is so impressed by that, the fact that he could eat and drink with Jesus showed that Jesus had a li- real true body. It wasn't just a spirit by where the food would go in his mouth and just drop on the floor, you know. It really, he swallowed and went inside his body. And so before the disciples, you know, at this time, before it, Jesus at this point, the disciples were all afraid. They were all doubtful. They were, they were not believing. But after touching him, after eating with him, after 
coming to, uh, to be able to physically using their senses, see and, and hear and touch, uh, and that Jesus, you know, basically just using the ways that we discover the things that are real, at least from a material sense, in our world, they began to realize and recognize that Jesus was bodily risen from the dead. It really was Jesus. And it really is a, he was, it was really a body, not just a ghost. He was a living human being. But they, these disciples, were witnesses of his death, right? They had all seen him die, though from afar. And now they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. They were beginning to recognize and by and by extension, believe in the resurrection of Christ. It's interesting that in the parallel to this passage in John chapter 20, uh, that he, John tells us that Thomas was actually was not there in that first, uh, that first um, uh, appearance, right? He's, uh, Thomas is, and then Thomas says, you know, unless I see and touch and, you know, him, I, I'm not going to believe. And so one week later, Jesus appears, and Jesus then invites him, well, we'll touch See, and every handle me, see my hands, my feet. And when Thomas says, Thomas says, my Lord, my God, right? But what did Jesus say then after that response? John 20, verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. I love that. That's the passage that talks about us. Blessed are those who did not see, who have not seen with their eyes, touched with their hands, heard with their ears the living, risen Savior, but have nevertheless still believed. Blessed are you who have believed, though you did not see. Today on earth, there's no one here who has the opportunity to see the risen Christ in the flesh. None of us do. And none of us that we ever share the gospel will ever do as well. But we can still, and we do still, believe in his resurrection. Is this blind faith? No, it's not blind faith, is it? Though we do walk by faith, it's not a blind faith. We walk by a faith that is grounded in the Word of God that records for us the firsthand test, eyewitness testimony of these disciples. These, these word, this Word recorded for us provides for us the evidence, the girding for our faith, the the, that which, in, that which in, draws us to believe what God has said in his word through the various testimonies of the apostolic writers. Of course, we would not believe in the resurrection of Christ. We would not have come to recognize and believe in the resurrection of Christ if it were not for the second response of the disciples of Christ to his resurrection. And that is, we find in, verse, the, in verses 44 to 49, witness of Christ's resurrection. The witness of Christ's resurrection. That to Christ's resurrection, the disciples of Christ respond by witnessing, testifying, telling others about that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, who died and rose from the grave. Let's pick it up. Uh, we read in verse 44 to, 40, 44 to 49. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, 
and that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This, uh, this section, verse 44 to 49, is Luke's equivalent of the Great Commission, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. This is basically Luke's equivalent of it, his recording of, of what Jesus said. And uh, these are genus, these are, uh, in Luke's gospel, Jesus' final words to his disciples. They're the last before his ascension. And Jesus begins his final words by reminding them of the truths that he had taught them during his earthly ministry. Remember all the things that I've taught you? You know... And just think about it. In a person's life, how many things, especially our parents, you know, how many things did they teach us over our lifetime? They taught us so many things, you know. And and hopefully, there's probably certain things that they've said over and over and over and over that if it was at the end of their life, if it was at their deathbed, they would want to remind you of. And you can just think about it. What would my parents want me to remember at their deathbed? What would, they, what would be those things that they've taught me, timeless truths, or those, those wisdom, those nuggets, those, this, maybe they'll just tell you, point you to, to, to remember Jesus, all those things. Well, here are Jesus' reminders. These are the things that Jesus reminds us. These are the things I have taught you that he wants them to remember. He taught it during his earthly ministry, and the thing that he taught them particularly was and specifically was that all that is written about him in the scriptures must be fulfilled. And that's what we find in verse 44. He wants to remember, remember all that is written about me in the scriptures must be fulfilled. Throughout his, throughout his ministry, he kept emphasizing to them that there is a divine destiny in his life. That he came not just to do whatever he wanted to do, not just whatever was his whim, but he came to do the will of God the Father that he came to fulfill God's purpose for him. Jesus Christ's life, his ministry, his death, all of it were the fulfillment of God's words, God's plan. See, God, unlike man's words, God's words will of necessity be fulfilled or God is not God. Whether in the law, the prophets, or the Psalms, whatever is written in the, God's holy scripture is guaranteed to be true. And if it's a foretelling of the future, it is guaranteed to come to pass. From beginning to end, the overall theme of the scriptures is the Messiah, the King, the Lord, who comes to save his people from their sins. And until Jesus opened their mind to understand the scriptures that we see in verse 45, the disciples basically never quite got it, right? We see there are many times Jesus would tell them, uh, the Son of Man must be uh, delivered into the hands of evil men and then be crucified and then raised again. And then they were like, uh, no. The next verse says, and they didn't get it. Or, well, essentially something like that. The disciples never quite understood these truths. But now as Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures and as he explains it to them again, they start to understand. They start to understand Christ's life and ministry. Of course, they knew what he did, but now they understand it. They understand it in the context of that it is a fulfillment of scripture. Not only do they understand Christ's life and ministry, but they slowly begin to understand their own ministry in light of his ministry. 
their own ministry, particularly as his witnesses. And in the rest of these verses here, we, we see how Jesus draws out and we get, Jesus teaches them about this ministry that they have. That there are, in a, in a sense, we can, might draw three observations, three things about this ministry that Jesus was entrusting, had entrusted to them. First of all, about this ministry of being witnesses, disciples, we learned that the disciples' message was to be Scripture's message. That is, their message needed to be the main primary theme of the Scriptures is the death and resurrection of Christ. We see that in verse 46. See, not only do Old Testament scriptures teach about Christ and his salvation in general, but specifically scriptures teach that he would suffer and die and that he would rise from the dead on the third day. And during that time, many Israelites did not expect a Messiah like this. They too, like just the disciples, just did not understand it. They didn't understand that uh, the idea of a, a Messiah who would come, this king who would come and die for their sins. They thought he would, they only saw the, the passage of conquest and triumph of deliverance and they thought he would just come and r- defeat their enemies and rule. They missed the promises of his death and resurrection. But they were there in the scriptures for all to see. Isaiah 53 is the clearest, again, of them, of the prophecies, which prophecies both of his death in verse 9, as well as his resu- verse 5 and his resurrection in verse 10. His death is promised in Genesis 3.15, foreshadowed in the sacrifices of the law, prophesied in Psalm 22. His resurrection is prophesied in Psalm 16.10 and foreshadowed in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the message of the gospel, it is what the scriptures point to. Uh, this was the message that Paul preached as we have looked at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to, uh, 1 to 4. And it's the message that Christ preached. Uh, if we think of passage like Mark 1, 14 to 15. The gospel then for disciples of Christ is to be our message as well. Every church has a message, does it not? Uh, you know, so it's... Um, and a lot of churches used to have sign boards. We don't, you know, uh, we used to have a sign board somewhere. And, uh, and you can kind of tell what a church is about by what they would put on that sign, you know. If it's talking about, you know, uh, something, anything else but Christ, well, that's, that's what they're talking about. You know, they, or they tell you to, hey, uh, remember to vote this week. Uh, remember to fight for justice this week. Remember to love, you know. And then not to say those are things that the scriptures does address at some point or in some way perhaps. But the message of every church, if there was a billboard on every church, if you could go through the, the, uh, the, the sermon titles of basically all, all that the church preaches, you would come to and understand, what is this message? What is the church's message? And uh, you know, we could you know, quickly just evaluate what other churches' message are, but we need to evaluate what is as the Bible's message? What is our main message? Is it love? Is it good deeds? Is it about community? Is it about some social or political issue? These are all secondary in nature, maybe even tertiary. For us, the Bible, our message is singularly the death and resurrection of Christ. We make no apologies for that. You want another message, you go find another church. There are other churches, but they will not do you the justice that is deserving of God who sent his son to provide uh, salvation from our sins through his death and resurrection. It is our only hope for this world, and that's, where, and that's why we preach it, 
Because we always hope that someone's going to come in here and hear about the death and resurrection of Christ and believe in him and be saved and come to know everything that, and have that given to them all that they need for life and godliness in this present world. That's our message. That's the disciples' message, God's message of the death and resurrection of Christ. We secondly observe the, something about the disciples' mission. And that is, their mission is to proclaim then salvation in Christ. If the, their message is the death and resurrection of Christ, their, then their mission is to proclaim it, to proclaim it. It's not just to believe it, but they need to proclaim it. They need to tell others about it. Then we see this in verse 47. Jesus is continuing even to say here what is written in Scripture about himself, that proclamation in his name for the forgive, uh, to repent for the forgiveness of sins is, is something that's foretold in Scriptures. Salvation from sins is to be, is to be proclaimed. We've noticed, first of all, that number one, a couple things about this, this call to salvation that is to be proclaimed. The call to salvation is, first of all, number one, a call to repentance. It's a, a call to change one's mind regarding one's sin, regarding uh, God and Christ. Some, uh, even in seeing this, that the message is to repent for the forgiveness of sins, make especially if you're a younger Christian, may stumble over this because we were, you were probably taught very well that you need to believe for the forgiveness of your sins, right? That's, that's the first thing I was taught as a kind of a non-believer. Oh, you need to, you know, this is what Jesus did, now you need to believe. And, and, that's, and that's true. That's true. That is what you need to do. But repentance is, just the, is, is what we call the other side of the coin of faith. That in the process of believing, you need to repent, there are just two sides going. Repent is turning away from sin, and faith is turning to God. And you, you have to have both. You can't have one without the other. Even if you think about Jesus when he came, Mark one uh, fifteen says, when the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the, that's the message. It's a call to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't even talk about faith here, but it's implied in this because it's, both are necessary. Number two, the call to salvation is, is a promise of forgiveness of sins. That this, now why do we need to repent? Because we need our sins forgiven. Uh, there's, uh, we, we don't need to go to the gospel here, but you know, all of us under the wrath of God because of our sin. But there is forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That our sins before a holy God can be forgiven, can be removed from us as far as the east is from the west. So that is what the death and resurrection of Christ and f- repentance can, uh, brings about. Number three, uh, the call to salvation is in the name of Jesus. This salvation that is, uh, uh, that, is, uh, is, that is offered is in the person of Jesus Christ. It is in the name, that is, in, it is through faith in the person and work of Christ, who he is, the son of God, the perfect son of God, and what he's done, that he died in our place and rose from the grave. There is no salvation in any other name. Number four, the call to salvation is an invitation to the world. It's, it's an invitation. It's to all the nations. It's not just to Jews, but it's to Jews and Gentiles. The gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone. It began in Jerusalem, yes. And it began as a, a predominantly Jewish faith. But it has slowly spread to the ends of the earth, all the way to San Francisco. Christianity has never meant to be solely a Jewish religion. It's not meant to be a, a Western religion. 
Christianity is a worldwide religion. Jesus here pointedly commissions his disciples to this mission to proclaim salvation and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. He says to them, you are witnesses of these things in verse 48. They had seen, and there's the idea, first of all, there's this idea that they had, were eyewitnesses. They had witnesses themselves. They had uh, firsthand seen the death and resurrection of Christ. They had firsthand heard the teachings of Christ. And so their mission then was to be witnesses, to testify to others of what they heard and what they saw of Christ's work, Christ's person, and Christ's teachings. And though we ourselves are not firsthand eyewitnesses, the disciples' mission is our mission today. We continue to testify and to be witnesses of what those first disciples saw with their own hands. We continue to pass on the message and the, the testimony of those early eyewitnesses. And we must understand our mission as a church, that this is our mission. It's, our mission is to proclaim Jesus Christ, salvation in Christ. That's what we are primarily about. Uh, the, the church does so many other things. Uh, we, we, do, um, you know, we, we do provide um, care. You know, for, we do provide community. Uh, we, we do uh, sometimes uh, kind of cooperate together for some common cause that is, that is a re- reflection of the gospel in some way. Uh, we do do those things. But we must always keep our mission first and foremost in our mind. Not the, not the results of it, not the, the sad thing, but our mission that is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Because that really helps us to prioritize what we're going to do. And I find that as I get older, I realize, oh, I really need to keep that on my, on my radar. Because there's so many, the church has gotten larger. And there's so many things, you know, to juggle as a church. This ministry needs some care. This ministry needs this. This ministry needs this. And there's, uh, this, this group needs this. This group needs this. That group needs this. And if we think about it, it sometimes get so caught up with just meeting the, the felt needs, the expressed needs of, of all the people in the church, and we forget about our mission. The mission to proclaim Jesus Christ helps us to prioritize as a church. It's just, in, and, uh, and I can't really, it won't go into all the details, but it, that comes out, that's so helpful for us, especially as elders of the church, when we talk about various matters. That what is our, what's our mission? And that keeps us on track. Thirdly, we observe, uh, not only do we, uh, uh, the disciples' message and the disciples' message, uh, mission, but we observe the disciples' might or their power to do so, to do this mission, is dependent upon the Holy Spirit, verse 49. Christ empowers his disciples then to their mission through the sending of the Holy Spirit. He says, wait for the Holy Spirit. He's going to come to you. He's going to give you power. Luke will record this truth again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right? Then he's, there he says in Acts 1, 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The disciples will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is what empowers you and me to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And that's why those disciples were so 
transformed in that early church. They, they, were, they were lit on fire to, to proclaim Christ and to die for Christ, to give their lives for Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us, as, uh, as disciples of Christ, gives us boldness and conviction to proclaim Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. I'll just give you some references. The Holy Spirit is also that which teaches us and helps disciples to remember all that we've learned. So many times we, we, we hear a lot of truth. We're, we're, we're kind of a good Bible church and we keep teaching the Bible. But the fact is we, we have finite brains and especially as we get older, much more is forgotten than remembered. And the fact is we still, but yet the Holy Spirit will help us remember that which we need to at the moment. Uh, John 14, 26. What's more, the Spirit would also do the work for us. Even as we proclaim the message, as we fulfill our mission, it's the Holy Spirit that goes before us and does a work in the heart of the, our listeners, bringing them to conviction of sin and their need for a, for a Savior. Uh, John 16, 7 and 8. And perhaps most important of all, the Spirit of God is the one who must go before and actually regenerate the dead hearts of those who hear. Because we're all, we're all dead Apart from Christ, we need our, our, our spirits to be regenerated, to, brought, to be born again, so that we can respond to the gospel. And that's John 3, 5, and 7. See, the Holy Spirit that empowered the, the early church to be witness of Jesus Christ is the same spirit that empowers us today as well. And without the Holy Spirit, our best efforts in witnessing are in vain. In obedience to Christ, the disciples eventually responded to Christ's call to be his witnesses. They did. And they told others, who then told others, who told others, and so on down the generation, and then until another had told you about Christ and how he died and how he rose from the grave and how you can repent and believe and be saved. Remember that? It was just this little life, your life, this lifetime. And as a disciple of Christ, now you are witnesses of these things. You and I have been given this great privilege to be on mission for Jesus Christ, to tell others that Jesus, the Son of God, came and took on the form of man, frail human, being, human humanity, and he lived and he suffered. And he died, innocent as a lamb of God, who died for our sins, crucified on the cross, rejected by men, abandoned by all, experiencing the full wrath of God for our sins, so that everyone who repents from sin and believes in Christ can have their sins forgiven and be saved. This is what he's done. And this is our testimony. And this may be our testimony wherever God leads us. May it be our testimony not just when we're at church, but may it be our testimony when we're outside of church. May it be our testimony when we're at home. May it be our testimony at school. May it be our testimony at work. May it be our testimony at the park. May it be our testimony when we travel. And may it be our testimony when we are at our deathbed. So that the we might live our lives in a manner that is worthy of our Savior who died for us. Luke ends his gospel 
with a record now of Christ's ascension, which demonstrates one last response to Christ's resurrection. And in verses 50 to 53, we see the response of worship. Worship. We worship because of Christ's resurrection. The word of God we read, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. From Jerusalem, we read how Jesus takes his disciples to Bethany, back to the Mount of Olives. And there, as he was praying a, pray, a prayer of blessing, maybe you've seen some of these, these old Renaissance-type paintings of, of Jesus kind of lifting up the air. He has his hand kind of raised, and he's just kind of floating up into space. He was just in the middle of praying a, a prayer of blessing upon his disciples, and he's lit, taken up, carried up into, into the heavens, and he ascends back to the Father in heaven returning to communion with his father, his return to glory, his exaltation at the right hand of the God the Father, his, his, uh, the, the demonstration of the completion of his work where he sits down at God's right hand. His ascension to heaven reveals God's acceptance of his son for the work that he did while on earth. But notice then... Uh, for our, for our response, that the immediate response of the disciples to all of this is worship. The disciples call to worship. They're, they're, it, it doesn't even actually, it's not even a call to worship. It, it draws them to worship. And they worship him. They, they don't say, oh, we got to go to church and, or the temple and worship him right now. They worship him right there and then, right there on the Mount Olives. They just, they just fall on their knees. They just praise the Lord. They worship him. They bless his name. For they finally, at this moment, begin to understand the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. They understood the mission that they were entrusted. They understood the glory of Christ that, that is now his as he returns to heaven. And then, after they worship there, they return to Jerusalem, and they worship there in the temple. They worship more. Notice, even as they, you kind of read, their, their worship was, uh, it's not a, it was not a somber worship. It was a joyful worship. Uh, you know, I, you know, we got to take a lesson for some of our uh, Pentecostal charismatic brethren. They got a lot of joy, okay? Uh, I know, I, and I don't know, I'm judging you because you, you guys are all those people that have joy, but, but you don't smile when you got joy, right? That's, that's, I know, so forgive me for judging you. But, you know, we need to have joy in our, in our worship. It's, it should be a, a joyful, at least heart, that we sing with, okay? Joyfulness. There's joy. This needs to be... Uh, there also needs to be a, a continual worship, a regular worship. They were regularly, continually in the temple. It just continued alpha. They were already worshipers of God. They went to the temple, but now they continued in the temple because that's where the people of God gathered for worship. And then they were full of praise. They were full of praise to God. They were willing to I heard a story this past week. I met with a fellow pastor, a friend of mine, this past weekend, and he was telling me a story. He went to this church. And I, was, I, wish it was, I wish he could say that it was as a Bible. But he went to this church, and he visited this church, and he sat down, and he sat down between two strangers. And at the end of service, you know, he just got chatting with them. And immediately, these people, they don't, they don't just walk away, say, oh, I got to go, you know, nice to meet you, go. They all, each of them, began telling him their testimony of what God had done in their life. 
If a stranger sat by you before next to you today, would you take time after service to tell them of what God is doing in your life? Are you, do you have any praise of God? Is there anything worthy of, that God has done in your life that you want to tell them about? That's, that's just, I was like, just a, that's a powerful testimony to that church. Praise God for, for what he's doing in there. And may he do the same here. But their, their worship was a continual worship in the temple. It was a regular place. And the temple was the regular place that Christ's disciples gathered to worship. And we don't have a temple today. We don't need a temple today. I think anything we learned from the pandemic, you don't need a building to worship God, right? We don't. This is nice. I ain't going to complain about it, especially on a day like today. But we do not need. The people of God do not need a building we do not need a, 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 a beautiful building. We, don't need a, we just need a place to gather where we can worship God. We've learned that. So all that we've, you know, um, anyways, I, I won't go there. We learn, but yet, nevertheless, this building is the place where SF Bible gathers to worship. It is the place that the Lord has given us to worship. And so we gather we gather and I invite you. And you know this. If you have, if you've been in a hole somewhere, uh, then you might not have heard that June fifteenth this week, uh, state, even a county restrictions, COVID restrictions. The COVID levels have declined so much that it is now. And the vaccinations levels have increased to enough extent that all these restrictions are being dropped. Right? You guys heard that? You don't have to wear your mask outside. You know, you don't. You don't actually. You have, you, if you're vaccinated, you can walk around like normal again. And so you got to bring a mask just in case for those few, those few limited places where you have, you have to wear a mask. You know, and so we're going to be worshiping the Lord. And I hope the following week you will all be back to worship with us uh, in person, whether outdoors or indoors. I look forward to seeing you. I know that uh, it's, it's going to be a comfort level kind of adjustment, and I get that. It's, it's, it's awkward, especially if you've been uh, kind of hunkered down in your, in your house, uh, for those of you that are online, for a year and a half. It's a long time. But if your government's saying so, <laughs> uh, and you know they don't do, say anything <laughs> so, uh, so uh, casually, uh, and, but we as a church invite you. We invite you to come and join us for worship in person. Worship with, with God's people. Come back and be part of the body of Christ here. We invite you to come back. So I look forward to seeing you so we can worship. Because we worship not because it's just we, it's not just because it's the, it's the thing to do, but we worship because of the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ is risen. And therefore we have the hope of eternal life. And one thing I hopefully you've all you've remembered that even as the pandemic has taught us that it's created us an awareness of, of death, right? There's truly it was it is a it was a pandemic. People did die. It is a dangerous, serious disease. But nevertheless, for those who are the people of God, because of the resurrection of Christ, even if you get COVID, even if you catch it, yes. And hopefully you do things, protect yourself, you don't wash your hands and things like that. But if you don't, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, you have a hope for life eternal, even if you do die. So may that be our hope. That's our hope, Christians. That's why we gather to worship. Well, Luke's gospel is an authoritative and accurate account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord.
It was written to give assurance of the, to the truth to his people. The scriptures, and in them, we learn that the scriptures from beginning to end show us Christ. They show us his birth. They tell us of his life. They tell us of his suffering, and they tell us his death, his resurrection, his salvation, and his coming kingdom. The kingdom that he invites all of us to be a part of. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand, is what Jesus said. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I invite you, if you have not yet, if you're here with us, or if you're joining us online, I invite you, if you have not yet, repent. Turn from sin. We're all sinners. And we're all fall short of the glory of God. And, but there's a danger to sin. We cannot continue it because it, bears, it stores up the wrath of God. So repent from sin. Turn away from that sin. And turn in faith to Jesus Christ who died for your sins. Who paid the penalty for your sins who died in your place so that you can have his righteousness and you can be saved. And the capstone of it all, of this gospel, is the resurrection of Christ, which we looked at today, that he truly is alive. But it begins our response by recognizing that he really is risen. It's not enough to say, well, he just, he just appeared to die and then he just kind of came back to life. It's not enough just to simply say he, he, he rose in a, in, only in a spiritual way, not really bodily. Because if he didn't bodily rise from the grave, then neither did we, will we. Without the resurrection of Christ, there really is no salvation. There is no Savior and Lord. But we thank God and praise the Lord that in, according to his scriptures, Christ is risen indeed. I'll leave you with three questions just kind of for you to think about as we end. These are just uh, draw straight from the, the uh, points. Do you recognize the reality of Christ's resurrection? Do you recognize, do you recognize it as truth, as an, a historical event? Not just as true, but it's a, it was a historical event that really took place in, in, the, in, in the history of mankind. And do you believe that? Romans 10, 9, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth Jesus and Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That resurrection is an important reality. And then secondly, how are you witnessing of Christ's resurrection to others? How are you witnessing Christ's resurrection to others? And just think about that. How are you praying? Pray for opportunities to do so. And then thirdly, how does the resurrection of Christ inspire your worship of him? How does it inspire your worship? Does it infuse your worship? Does, does when, you, when we gather together, do, you know, do you have to pump yourself, kind of psych yourself up you know, to worship the Lord? Simply, or do you, can you just simply reflect that Christ died and Christ rose and grave? That's why I'm here to worship. Is that why you're here to worship? Because Christ died and Christ rose from the grave for, for you. And, you. and he's your Savior and he's your Lord. And if that's the case, then, then let's all stand and let's worship the Lord with our final song.